and Don Maloff is now going to lead us in the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. This can be found on page 1613 in your pew Bibles. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Don. We are in a series on, or in the Gospel of Luke, looking in this season of Lent at what it means to be gospel neighbors. Last week, we looked at the story that comes immediately before this in Luke, the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, This morning we'll be looking at Mary and Martha, but those two things go together. So, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, long ago, uh, poet Robert Frost advised us that good fences make good neighbors. Good fences make good neighbors. And he probably meant something like good boundaries help people get along. But since then, it's kind of been taken um, to mean and to assume that Um, A good neighbor is someone who simply minds his or her own business, right? Don't get into my stuff. That's a good neighbor. Now, I'm not too sure about that because I've got a neighbor who tends to make my business his own, and I actually love it. For instance, last summer he got so tired of looking at my ratty lawn um, that he actually took it upon himself to grow some real grass on my lawn, all right? I can only cultivate weeds. He's done a wonderful job. And my whole neighborhood loves this guy, and they love him, actually, for what he does over at my house. (laughs) I think he increases the value of the whole neighborhood just by by (laughs) making my place look a little better. Still, I think our text has something even better to say about neighboring, and that is that a good neighbor is not someone who minds his or her own business, but a good neighbor is someone who minds God's business. A good neighbor is someone who minds God's business. And how do we know what God's business is? Well, it's Jesus who teaches us that. Now, when I say that, and when you look at the text we're looking at, you may be thinking, I've never quite heard this text applied to what it means to be a good neighbor before. And that's because the text that we just read or that Don just read is a pretty good example of a story from Scripture that often gets ripped out of its context so that we can use it to mean just about whatever we want it to mean. For instance, um, if you didn't like last week's story about the Good Samaritan or what Jesus told us then, chances are, You like this text better this morning. 
And that's because these two texts are often placed in competition with one another. In other words, the parable of the Good Samaritan is all about doing, right? It's all about doing. And, and so it seems like some of us believe that Luke gave us then this story about Mary and Martha to sort of soften the story about the Good Samaritan. And so this account then takes on this, this corrective purpose in the Gospel of Luke. It's presented as if, um, as if Luke is sort of backtracking from the story of the Good Samaritan. And he's saying, okay, you know, don't get too upset about all this doing, um, all this stuff that Jesus talks about in that parable. Because true religion, the true religion of Jesus is really about sitting at the feet of Jesus and contemplating all the things that he says. That's, that's true Christianity. And friends, in all honesty, our doctrine can sort of lead us in that direction. I mean, if you grew up Protestant, you probably grew up with this fear of earning your salvation. And that fear can lead us to understand that Christianity is really all about what we think and all about what we believe and not really about what we do. Okay? Um, Klein Snodgrass uh, is a commentator. He writes, he writes this. He says, The fear of works righteousness is far too exaggerated in most churches. He said, Would that there were an equal fear of being found inactive. We would do better, he adds, to realize that people who do not work cannot be righteous. I like the way another commentator put it. He said this, people who think this way have a mania for creeds and an anemia for deeds. A mania for creeds and anemia for deeds. So, it's time to take the test. Is that how you've sort of read this account in the past, this account of Mary and Martha? That Jesus is sort of telling us, look, all that stuff I said in the Good Samaritan, don't take it too seriously. Don't get too worried about that. There's only one thing that's really necessary, and that one thing is to sit at my feet sort of in a, in a dog-like, you know, adoring posture, just looking up at Jesus. Keep talking, Jesus. Keep talking. Christianity is all about, you know, adoring worship and nothing about action. Well, if that's the way you thought about this text, I sort of hate to burst your bubble, but it just doesn't make very good sense to me. You know, the very last words that we read last Sunday, remember the last words of our text, if you still have your Bibles open? These were the last words we read. Go and do likewise. Go and do. That's what Jesus told the lawyer. Go and do. And so I think it would be a little strange if instantaneously Jesus were to backtrack on that. and Say, wait a minute, that's not what I meant. Further, what would the church be like without doers? What would the church be like without doers? I mean, Martha, I think, often gets a bad rap from this story. But Martha really is the kind of person that no church can get along without. 
I mean, Martha's the kind of person that when you need somebody to, to host the visiting rabbi, she throws open her doors. When someone gets sick, she's the first one there with a meal. When volunteers are needed in the nursery, or to serve lunch at the classes meeting, or to build wheelchairs to ship overseas, or to change out the starter on someone's car, Martha's name is always the first one on the volunteer sheet. The church needs Martha's. Where would we be without Martha's? It would seem odd if Jesus were scolding Martha for being a doer. Another direction that, that people have taken this text is to make it all about women's ordination. In other words, Martha's days in the kitchen are finally over, right? Now, wherever you might stand on that issue, there are some things that we need to take note of here. And some of them might actually push us in that direction. But for one, Mary is in the position of sitting at Jesus' feet, sitting at the Lord's feet. And, and that is not just a statement of her posture or where she is. That statement is actually a, a technical sort of term. It means that she was a student of Jesus, that she was learning from Jesus. For instance, we read in the book of Acts that Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel, okay? What that means is that Paul was a student of Gamaliel. He was trained by, by Gamaliel, by his rabbi. He was a disciple of Gamaliel. That's what Mary's doing at the feet of Jesus. Now, contrary to what some have said, Judaism did not forbid women to be instructed in the Torah. It did not forbid women to be instructed. And yet it was very, very rare for that to happen. And so for Jesus, this rabbi among rabbis, for him to welcome Mary and have her sit at his feet, this was very, very telling about Jesus' regard for women. But again, often this idea is used to contrast Mary with Martha. And sort of to belittle Martha in the process and her service in the kitchen. And again, to me, that sounds more like you and me reading our thoughts and our biases into the text rather than allowing Luke to speak to us what he wants to say. You see, as we said, Jesus and Luke together, have, they have nothing against serving they have nothing against doing. If anything, Luke actually places a premium on service, on diakonia. And that's how uh, Martha is described here as a deacon. She's serving. And Jesus himself stresses that he came not to be served, right? But to serve. Same word. Serving isn't a feminine thing, in other words. Serving is a Christian thing. Diakonia is a Christian thing. So what I'm getting at is that we have to be really careful not to rip passages out of their context, but rather 
to keep them in their context, to explore the context further. And I think when we do that with this text, what we find is that Luke is not contrasting Mary with Martha, but actually Luke is contrasting Mary with the lawyer that we read about last week. Let's take a look at that for a moment, why we might say that. If you have your Bibles open, again, if you look back to verses 21 and 22 of Luke chapter 10, there we read the story of of Jesus is sending out the 72, okay? And he sends out the 72 ahead of him. They're to go into all the villages and towns and proclaim that the kingdom of God is near And Jesus prepares them for that task by telling them, look, some people are going to hear your message and they're going to agree with it. Some are not going to agree with it. Some will believe, some will not believe. When you get to verses 21 and 22, he's praising God for the results that he has seen or the results that have been reported on by the 72. And he says this, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because You have hidden these things from wise, from the wise and learned, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Now let's pause there for a moment. The Father has hidden things from the wise and the learned. He's revealed them to little children. There's a contrast there, isn't there? The contrast is between the wise and learned and the little children. Now, where might we find an example of the wise and learned? In the lawyer, right? The lawyer who has just spoken. And where might we find an example of the little children? In Mary. See, what we find here is that the wise and learned one who comes to question Jesus, what do we read about him? He came to test Jesus, and he came to justify himself. He didn't come to learn something. And what do we read about Mary? Mary, who probably in her culture never had a chance to sit at the feet of a rabbi. She wants to come and sit at Jesus' feet and be his student and learn and soak up everything he has to say. That's where we have our contrast. God has hidden things from the wise and the learned that he then reveals to little children. Now look at verse 22. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. And no one knows who the Father is except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The Son knows the Father The Son reveals the Father. Now, do you hear that? It's Jesus who reveals the identity of God, who reveals the identity of the Father. Who's listening to Jesus? It's Mary. It's Mary. And friends, this plays into the very structure of the the text itself, this contrast between Mary and and the lawyer. Um, Ben, if you would just throw up that slide... If you think back to the conversation that got this all started last week, 
It was the conversation with the lawyer about the law of God, right? And he summarized the law for us. He said the law is two parts. Love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. What we find in these two texts when you put them together is sort of uh, this A-B-B-A structure. First we have the love of God, okay? And then love of neighbor. Those are the two commands. Jesus then tells a story about what it means to love your neighbor And finally, we get an account about what it means to love God, Mary and Martha. In the very structure of of the story itself, we're being told there's a contrast here, not between Mary and Martha. The contrast is between Mary and the lawyer. The questions we're being asked, what does it mean to love your neighbor? The Good Samaritan. What does it mean to love God? Well, listen to Jesus and you will find out. Who are the people who listen to Jesus? They're the little children. They are those who humble themselves before Jesus. They are those who think that Jesus has something to teach me. Who are the little people? They're Mary. They're Colston. Okay? And hopefully you. Hopefully each one of us is willing to humble ourselves before Christ and to ask what it is that he has to teach us. Mary is one of the little children. She sits at Jesus' feet to learn and to learn from the only one who knows the Father and can reveal the Father to us. Think about the lawyer. Did he ever ask the question of Jesus, how do I love God? No. He assumed that he knew the answer to that question. The Bible tells us, if you want to love God, you keep his commandments. He had no trouble knowing how to love God. He thought he knew how to keep the commandments. The contrast is between someone who thinks he already knows God and what it means to love God and someone who comes to Jesus humbly and says, Jesus, teach me what it means to love God, for I am listening. So what does it mean? Well, if there's no contrast between Martha and Mary... Okay? then there's really no contrast between Mary's listening and Martha's doing either. There's no contrast here between works and worship. There's no contrast between learning and serving. And there's no contrast between loving God and loving neighbor. These aren't being held up for us as two opposite things. That you either love God or you love neighbor. In fact, they're being pulled together by Jesus. They're being pulled together by Luke. How do you love God? You love your neighbor. You can't love God without loving your neighbor. It's just not possible. Jesus is putting these things together for us. Loving God means loving your neighbor. Now, if that's the case then, If there is no contrast between Mary and Martha, 
then why does Jesus say that Mary has chosen the better thing? Why does he say that Mary has chosen the better thing? What was she doing that was better compared to Martha? This is kind of what throws us. So here's one way I think we can get at that. When we began this entire series in the Gospel of Luke, we began with a simple statement from Luke. This applied to Jesus when he was in the desert being tempted by, by Satan. And Luke told us that Jesus was hungry, right? Simple statement, Jesus was hungry. And at that time, we emphasized the fact that Jesus was human like us, that he, was, he underwent the very same kinds of temptations that we undergo. Jesus was hungry. Now, here in Luke chapter 10, this human Jesus, this same human Jesus, is at the house of Mary and Martha, and he's what? You can assume he's hungry. He's hungry again. And Martha wants to serve this Jesus that she loves. How does she do that? By getting in the kitchen and whipping up a meal that Jesus is going to love. And she wants Mary to help her. Jesus has a need. I'm trying to fill it. Mary, will you help me? Now, who could blame Martha for that? I mean, she's hospitable. She's making room, not just for anyone, but she is making room for Jesus. That's the entire goal of the gospel, right? When Jesus was born into the world, nobody would make room for him. We all have to make room for Jesus in our hearts. Martha is trying to do that. She's making room for Jesus. She's trying to serve and love the Jesus who's right in front of her. But this reminds me of something else that Jesus said as well. Actually in Luke 12. And he said it not just to Martha, not just to Mary, but he said it to all of his disciples. He said, life is more than food. And the body is more than clothes. So why do you worry about these things? Same word, Martha was anxious and worried. Jesus says, why do you worry about these things? Then what does he say next? Seek his kingdom. Jesus knew human hunger. Okay, we've got that. But more than that, we have to understand that Jesus carried with him everywhere he went a hunger for the kingdom of God. Jesus carried with him God's hunger for the kingdom. He carried with him the, the Father's hunger, not just that his own stomach should be fed, but that no one should be hungry. No one. This is the hunger of Jesus. This is the hunger of God. And Jesus didn't make that a secret. He didn't keep that a secret. He began proclaiming that and preaching that from his very first sermon. 
Remember from Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is on me to preach good news to the poor, to give them exactly what they're hungry for, to proclaim release for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, release for the oppressed. Jesus came proclaiming God's will, God's hunger, the things that God hungered for, not that you and I hunger for. But to know these things, to understand truly the heart of God, what do we have to do? Where do we go? We go to Jesus, and we listen to Jesus with open ears and open eyes. And this is exactly what Mary is doing. She's not sitting at Jesus' feet like an Irish setter. She is at his feet as a student, listening to him, so that he will reveal to her the Father and the Father's commands and what it means to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Bible says, yes, that to love God is to obey his commands. And Mary wants to hear Jesus' explanation of what those commands really are. She wants to hear everything that the lawyer thought he already knew. And this is where Martha comes in. Martha's busy serving like crazy. Her, her apron is drenched with sweat. Why? Because she sees this Jesus in front of her. And she wants to love Jesus. And she, she knows that Jesus is hungry and she wants to feed him. And that's all good. It's all good. But Martha needs one thing more. She doesn't really seem to understand Jesus' divinity. Jesus' true hunger. And Mary does. It might help if we just switch Gospels here for a moment. Okay, if you allow me to do that. Think of Matthew's Gospel Think of Matthew chapter 25. That's the parable of the sheep and the goats. Right? Many of us know that parable. We've heard it before. What happens there? Well, Jesus commends all the sheep. Right? He commends them. Why does he commend them? Well, because they serve the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and they clothe the naked. They visited the prisoner and they all kind of wonder, well, when did we do that? And Jesus said, well, when you did it for one of the least of these, you did it for me. And then he condemns the goats, right? On the very same basis. You didn't come and visit me. You didn't feed me. You didn't give me anything to drink. You didn't clothe me when I was naked. Well, when, when did we do that? When you didn't do it for the least of these. And, and that's sort of where Martha is. Well, Jesus, you know, I fed you. And she can't make that leap. That leap that the sheep make in, in Matthew 25, that Jesus is, is more than this person standing in front of us. There's a leap you have to make that loving Jesus also means loving your neighbor. It also means loving the poor and the hungry and the blind and those who are lonely and those who are overlooked and those who are left out and those who look different. It's loving those people. Jesus says, that's what it means to love me. 
Martha, you can feed my stomach, but you have to realize what I'm really hungry for. And Mary got that. And she sat at Jesus' feet and she said, Jesus, I'm empty. Fill me. Teach me. I'm listening. And he did. This is the better thing. This is the better thing. Why? Let me just end with a story. This is a story that Scott Jose heard from the great preacher Thomas Long, one of his sermons. Long told the story of a woman named Grace Thomas. Uh, You've probably never heard of Grace. I'd never heard of her before this either. She was born in the early 20th century, the second of five children. Her father was a streetcar conductor in Birmingham, Alabama. And so Grace grew up in very modest uh, circumstances. Later in life, after getting married, moving to Georgia, um, she took up a clerking job in the state capitol. And she loved being around politics so much that she desired a fo- or she developed a fondness for the law and decided to go back to night school to study to be a lawyer. She was a full-time mom, a full-time clerk. She took on night school to study law at the same time. In 1954, Grace shocked her family by announcing that she wanted to run for public office. Now, what's more, she didn't run for something small, okay, like drain commissioner or something like that. Um, Grace wanted to run for the governor of Georgia, and she did. She was one of nine candidates, okay? Um, There was one issue that year. The issue was Brown versus the Board of Education, the landmark decision that mandated the desegregation of schools. Of those nine candidates, Grace alone thought that this was a good decision and a just decision. Her campaign slogan was, Say Grace at the Polls. No one did. She ran dead last. Her family was glad that she finally got it out of her system. Except she didn't. And so she decided to run for governor again in 1962. And by then, the racial tensions had hit sort of a a peak. And Grace's progressive platform on race issues earned her a number of death threats And one day she held a rally in a small Georgia town and and she chose as her venue an old slave market in the town square. And as she, she stood there talking, Grace motioned to the platform behind her where once human beings had been sold as chattel and 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 she said, The old has passed away, and the new has come. A new day has come when all Georgians, white and black, can join hands and work together. At that point, a red-faced man in the crowd interrupted Grace's speech and he shouted, Are you a communist? And Grace replied quietly, Why no? He said, Well then, where'd you get all those gall-derned ideas? And Grace 
pointed to the steeple of the Baptist church, also on the town square. And she said, I learned them over there when I was in Sunday school. See, Grace had spent her time listening to the Lord. And what she heard changed her life. And it launched her on a very specific mission in life. It's always a good thing to sit, to listen to the Word of God. But you have to understand, it's also very, very dangerous. Because it always leads to action. These two things are not contrasting. The Word of God will make you a doer. It will make you act. It will make you love your neighbors as God wants you to love. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, forgive us when we think the gospel is only about believing. There's no call to action. And forgive us when we manipulate your word to support our theories. Lord, give us the humility to truly listen to your word, to sit at Jesus' feet, to open our ears, and to say, teach us, Lord Jesus. Teach us what it means to love our God and to love our neighbors. You are the only one who can reveal to us the Father. And so, Jesus, our ears and our hearts are open. We're listening. Teach us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.